Shake it. 
holding on to you in the middle of the storm. If this is your first time joining us this morning, either here in person or online, we'd love to have you take just a minute and go to reallifecc.us, click on the I'm new link and fill out that short uh, form. We just want to send you an email and, uh, and actually uh, give to a charity on your behalf. And so there's an opportunity to do that. If you jump over to the website, love to have you uh, do that today. Um, in just a moment, we're going to uh, kind of receive communion or an offering, we're going to give you the opportunity to, uh, to do that online. Um, I, um, and so <laughs> I'm a little confused, right? Because we switched up offering and communion a few weeks ago and I got uh, all mixed up this morning like I wasn't doing which one, when, and I don't know anyway. Glad to be here. It is offering time and I want to look at, um, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 145 in the message and in the communion talk in a few minutes, we're going to share from Psalm 143. So it's kind of just turned out to be a psalm day. And I was at a conference in Texas a couple weeks ago and I heard uh, Phil Claycomb from Nexus. He said this, when you read the Psalms, he said, you always start from behind, in trouble or in a spot. And I was thinking about that in the Psalms that I've read. You know, there's 140 some Psalms and it seems like every one of them, the author starts from behind. There always seems to be some predicament, some pain, some um, problem when the Psalm begins. It's that struggle that the Psalmist is going through that, that perhaps sparks the writing or prompts the writing of the Psalm in the first place. But as the writer is putting all of that on paper, it seems like they're reminded every time of God's faithfulness and his promises to always be near. And so as you read the Psalms, they always start out pretty dark. Like enemies are coming around me and life is just terrible and I just don't know which way to go, but God, you are faithful and I'm going to remember you and I'm going to call out to you and I'm going to reach out to you. I think the same thing that happens in the Psalms happens in our finances. We often come to God when we're in financial trouble, right? When we're behind on a payment, uh, when we're in a tight spot financially. I don't think that God gets angry about that. I think he knows exactly what he created in humanity. And I think he simply, simply takes us where we are and, and tries, usually repeatedly in each of our lives, to lead us to where he wants us to be. I don't know what your personal financial situation is, but I have seen in my own life that when I trust God, 
he always sees me through it. He always is proven faithful. I never know how he's going to do it, right? Like at the beginning of the process, I'm like the writer of Psalm. I don't know what to do, God, and it feels like everything is crashing around me and the creditors are calling me and I don't know how you're going to do it. But he has always seen us through it. That would never have happened if we don't first put our trust in God in the midst of our trouble. And so I just want to challenge you today to trust God in the middle of whatever trouble you might be in. Maybe that's relational trouble or emotional trouble, or maybe it's financial trouble. Put your trust in God so that you can see him come through for you like he has for so many others. If you want to join us in giving today and support the mission and ministry of real life, and if you want to move into that place of trust in the midst of trouble, you can go to reallifecc.us on your uh, computer, your mobile device, click on the orange uh, give icon in the bottom right-hand corner, follow those prompts, and you can give securely online that way uh, from anywhere in the world. You can also give one time, or you can set up repeated uh, giving opportunities um, at whatever uh, time and date you choose. We also have another way because we've got a bunch of people watching online. If you don't trust technology uh, very much, you can also send your gift to Real Life Church at PO Box 265 here in El Dorado. And if you're joining us here in person, remember that we've got the bucket in the back if you want to give cash or check that way. Uh, however you give and whether or not you give, we're glad that you're here and you're joining us today. So let's uh, pray and then we'll go into our time of communion. God, thank you so much for loving us and caring for us, for giving us every good thing. Thank you for showing up in the midst of our trouble and our struggle. And every time something's going on, God, you're right there. You're always near us. And, and so help us to be like the writers of the Psalms. Even when we're in trouble, help us to remember your faithfulness, remember your mercy and your grace, and that you are always there. And remember that you're big enough to handle every problem that we face. And so help our trust and our reliance be in you and not in the things that we have here on this earth, not in our finances, not in our relationships, um, not in ourselves even. So help us in every area of our lives to trust you completely so that we can see you work in and then through us. Thank you, God, for being here and being with us. Thank you for the ministry and the mission that you've called us to here at Real Life to help every person possible find real life in your son Jesus and look more like him every day. Help us to do that, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome once again to Real Life. If you're joining us during this time online today, I hope that you have grabbed something to eat, maybe something to drink and you'll be ready to participate in this time of communion. If you haven't done that yet, um, maybe press pause and run into the kitchen and grab something so that you can participate with us as we take a moment out to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Here at Real Life, we practice open communion. That just means that uh, there's nothing special uh, about you during this time. You just need to be a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and you can participate with us. Today, I want to read from Psalm 143, what David writes in a particularly difficult time in his life. Here's the first five verses. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me 
to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. And so my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I'll bet that maybe more than a few of us are feeling like David did in this psalm. You believe that God is faithful and righteous, but life just feels like it's crushing you to the ground. That your spirit is faint within you, and maybe you're even a little dismayed with God because of your circumstances. Here's what David did when he felt that way. He said, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider all that you have done. David remembered the incredible stories that his parents and his elders had told him of the mighty things God had done. He meditated and thought deeply about God's works, both ancient and recent, even in David's own life, some of which we'll talk about in the message a little later this morning. And thirdly, he considered or he pondered what God's hands had done. Things like forming man from the dust of the earth. He caused a metal axe head to float as Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt. He made the sun to stand still. God did supernatural things. And God has the power not only to raise the dead, but to restore sinners and repair relationships. We take communion not because we've been sinners, but because we're being saved. And God is doing a supernatural work in each of us, transforming us to look more like his son, Jesus. And so we can say what David said next in verse 6. He said, I spread out my hands to you. Today, as you take communion, remember, meditate, and ponder what God has done and is doing in your life. And then lift up your hands to him, whether physically or, or just um, spiritually in your mind. Lift up your hands to him because he is reaching out to you. He doesn't count our sins against us, but he treats us like his sons and daughters. And so we come to God today, not because we're perfect, but because we're progressing, because he is working by his Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. And so we remember what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead. And, and, and we meditate on what that means for each of us, that we don't have to live separate lives from God, but we can re live a real life in a relationship with God. And then we, we ponder what that means for us moving forward, that our life doesn't have to, to lead in the direction that it was, that, that, that our lives can change, that we can become new people and we can have new and living and lasting hope through Jesus Christ. And so today, as we come to take communion, remember, meditate and ponder on all that God has done for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for everything that you have done, but most importantly, thank you for who you are. You are our God, our Father who has saved us and who is making us into the image of your Son. And so today we come before you thankful of what you've done, even though sometimes we feel like we've been just pounded to the ground. We reach out to you, we reach up to you, and know that you are there. Because we've seen what you've done in the past, we have hope 
for our future. And so today, God, thank you for being present with us, whether here in this building or in the homes and the lives of each and every person watching online. Would you connect us together as your church and your family? And would you continue to give us that hope that keeps us moving when we feel like we might be walking with the dead? Thank you, God, for being present with us today. In Jesus' name.
All right, good morning again. Um, I have never owned a yard that I was uh, proud of. Um, when I was a kid, the guy across the street and one house over had one of those yards that's just the, like the envy of the neighborhood, right? It was just this beautiful, thick, green grass. It was just, it looked like uh, every morning they just came out and uh, unrolled a grass blanket on their front yard. And, and I remember as a kid, like, you might not get this, but maybe you do. <laughs> I remember as a kid, I, like, all I wanted to do was just go play on that yard. Like I wanted to go play football on that yard with the neighborhood kids. I wanted just to go lay on the yard. I remember one time I wrecked my bike in front of his house so that I fell into the grass. Like falling on a cloud. It was uh, we tried to replicate his yard in our yard. Um, we could never match his yard game. Right? I mean, it just never worked out. No matter how hard we tried, the grass just never was as green. We never could fill in all the bare and the bald spots. We never even could just get the right kind of grass. Like there was always other grass uh, in the yard. It just never did quite work out right. Now, Andrea and I have lived in three houses since we moved to El Dorado about 14 or 15 years ago. In every house, the yard has been, well, crap. But every time, uh, no matter which house we lived in, after I got done mowing and weed-eating and taking care of it, uh, if Andrea came home or she looked out the window or whatever, she would make this comment and she would say, oh, the yard looks so nice. And I always thought, whose yard? With, like, you're not talking about our yard, because our yard is gross and disgusting, and, and I don't get that. And I, I asked her one time about the, I'm like, you always say that the yard looks nice, and it's good. so what do you mean? Because I don't like our lawn at all. And so how come you can say that you like it? And, and this was her response. It was close to this anyway. Like, don't ask her afterwards. It was close to this, not a direct quote. She said something like, well, it's cut and it's greenish. And I think you put a lot of work and effort into it, and so it looks fine. And I always wondered, I'm like, something's going on with her. Like there's, I don't know what is, another planet or something, I don't know. And I finally think that I figured out why she could think the yard looked nice when I thought it looked terrible. And I, and I think this is the reason. I'm the one that's actually outside in the dirt. I'm the one who mows the yard and I edge and I weed eat and I'm out there and I know the yard, right? Like I've walked it. I know where the bulb patches are. I know there's a spot in our yard right now. If you get too close, you'll find that it's mostly gravel and there's very little grass in there. I know where the bumps are and the dips are and the, and the, and the junky stuff. I, I know, and I'm really sorry, Todd and Janine, Denise, that it's this way. But I've got some Johnson grass growing up, and Johnson grass is horrible. I don't think it came from them. But that's what it's called, and their last name has to be Johnson, so anyway. Yeah, somebody cut me off there just for that. Anyway, so I, 
I've got like all these different kinds of grass and all of the kinds of grass are terrible grass. But Andrea looks at the lawn differently. When she comes home after I've been out and been in the yard and immersed in the yard and like I know the yard, right? She comes home and, and she just looks at the yard almost like she looks past the yard or through the yard. And I think I've decided this is, this is the deal. When she comes home, if she looks at the yard and she doesn't see knee-high um, weeds and the color has a green tint to it, then she goes, we have a fine yard. <laughs> I, am, I don't feel that way. I don't think that same way. But I do think that many Christians tend to think that God views our lives the way that Andrea views um, our lawn. That, that he just is looking from a distance at the big picture. And he's not really paying attention to the details. Details like, um, like this. Did they go to church on Sunday? Or, or did they watch um, online last week? Was the family involved? Or did at least mom or dad or somebody check in at least for a little bit? And like, okay, you like check that box, right? They, they watched, they were involved in church, and so that's good. Or, or maybe, maybe she gave a little money uh, last month or last week or whatever. And, and so it's like, okay, I'll just kind of quick glance. Okay, they gave a little bit. All right, that's good. Maybe he served in church somewhere, help some uh, little old lady across the street, and so, and so that's good. And so we have this idea, we, we think that, that God just kind of looks at our lives from afar, and that if we live generally good lives, that God really doesn't care about the small stuff going on in our life. Like our, our faith is really all he cares about, right? And, and not our faults or our failures. And so we don't really need to care about those things either because God, just like every once in a while, he kind of gives this sweeping glance and he looks out. Like they go to church, they serve, they give. Okay, they're good, let's move on. But that is faulty theology. Because thinking that God just cares about the big picture and, and not the details, it gives us the freedom to do what we want to do day in and day out as long as we believe, right? And we just think, well, if I just believe that God exists, if I just believe that he's powerful, then none of the other things in my life really matter. So basically, we try to make sure that when God looks in our direction, when, you know, he comes around and makes another path, pass like the, like the earth around the sun, when he comes around again, we just want to make sure that, like, nothing catches his eye in our lives. Like, there's no big weeds growing up. Like, we can keep them small, right? And so when we keep them small and, and close to our, to our lives or to our heart, then they kind of look like everything else and they blend in and you can't really tell. Like when Andrea looks at our yard, she can't tell the weeds from the, the grass because they're both green. So we think God just kind of looks at our lives. As long as there's no big weeds, he kind of just moves on. As long as our lives look kind of good-ish, then we're probably going to be okay. Uh, there's nothing that kind of causes a red flag in, in our lives to go up as God looks at us, then everything's going to be okay. As long as we look good to God from a distance, we're going to be okay. 
Because look, he's too busy, right, to, to focus in on our lives. He's got the universe to take care of. Like it's got to be exhausting to keep all of those planets from just falling out of the sky. And so we can just work our lives enough that, that, that God kind of doesn't see anything that causes him to pause and really focus on what's going on in our lives. In the Old Testament, King David was one of the greatest men in the Bible. I think arguably you could say that, that King David is right up there among the top of the greatest characters in the Bible. It's said of David, not of anyone else, but of David, that he was a man after God's own heart. But we know that David was not perfect. He had a lot of problems. Chief among those problems was his adultery with Bathsheba and, and then his murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And so David isn't necessarily a, a poster child for a follower of God. He's more like someone who, who would want God to look at their lives from a distance, right? Because up close, David had some pretty big problems. From far away, he looked pretty good. Like I think David's biggest thing in his life was just that, that David never had a point in his life where he, where he stopped following God only. Like every other king of Israel, every other person of the Bible, there's times where they are led astray and they begin to follow other gods and idols and worship them and bow down to them and that kind of thing. And David never does that. And so from afar, David's life looks pretty good. And God's like, well, you know, he hasn't run off after this God or that God. He hasn't done any of those crazy things. And so David's pretty good. From a distance, he looks good. But up close, he's got some problems. Today, we're going to look at one of the last Psalms in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. But it really is one of the earlier Psalms that David chronologically wrote. It's Psalm 145. Some believe that this psalm, or really the word psalm means song, some believe that this song was written by David shortly after he faced Goliath, right? And he went in front of the army of Israel and he went and fought Goliath with just a sling and a stone. But regardless of when he wrote Psalm 145, it's what he wrote that is important for us to understand today as we look at the great expectation of the big picture. So we're going to read Psalm 145. It's going to be a little different today than, than a normal Sunday, okay? We're going to read Psalm 145, and then we're going to just hang out in that psalm, and we're going to look at it from uh, about four, three or four different um, angles, uh, and really hopefully kind of get to know it a little bit. By the way, if I seem a little off this morning, it's because today is the worst day of the year. Today is the day that I stop wearing shorts and have to wear pants to church because it's too cold at 7 a.m. Okay, so anyway, it's just, I like, look, the emperor needs a new groove, right? Uh, like it's just off, everything is off, and everything is bad with the world. Anyway, have any movement anymore. Okay, so let's get to Psalm 145 really quickly before we go any further. Here's David's uh, Psalms, the whole thing. 
He says, I will praise you, my God and King, and always honor your name. I will praise you each day and always honor your name. You are wonderful, Lord, and you deserve all praise because you are much greater than anyone can understand. Each generation will announce to the next your wonderful and powerful deeds. I will keep thinking about your marvelous glory and your mighty miracles. Now, let me pause right here and just say, um, if you're having trouble seeing this um, or you're watching us online at home or whatever, you can click on the notes tab uh, if you're watching it live.reallifecc.us or you can go to reallifecc.us and click on my message notes and all of these notes and all the text is, is there and you can follow along there. So if you miss something or hard to see or whatever, just go there and you can uh, catch up. Okay, let's go on. Everyone, he says, will talk about your fearsome deeds and I will tell all nations how great you are. They will celebrate and sing about your matchless mercy and your power to save. You are merciful, Lord. You are kind and patient and always loving. You are good to everyone and you take care of all your creation. All creation will thank you and your loyal people will praise you. They will tell about your marvelous kingdom and your power. Then everyone will know about the mighty things you do and your glorious kingdom. Your kingdom will never end and you will rule forever. Our Lord, you keep your word and do everything you say. When someone stumbles or falls, you give a helping hand. Everyone depends on you. And when the time is right, you provide them with food. By your own hand, you satisfy the desires of all who live. Our Lord, everything you do is kind and thoughtful, and you are near to everyone whose prayers are sincere. You satisfy the desires of all your worshipers, and you come to save them when they ask for help. You take care of everyone who loves you, but you destroy the wicked. I will praise you, Lord, and everyone will respect your holy name forever. And so if I had to sum up this psalm, and I do, I would say it uh, this way. God is already near to you, but he wants to be dear to you. God is already near. He wants to be dear. See, David writes this psalm about himself, his God, his fellow Israelites, and then really about all humanity. And there's some very distinct differences about how each of these groups or each of these segments are explained. So um, this is going to, again, be a little different. We're just going to kind of look at Psalm 145 from each of these different angles and, and see what David has to say about each of them. And the first one he talks about is really he just mentions the word everyone. Okay, there's several times in the text that he mentions everyone and how they think or how they respond to God. And, and so he says, um, first, everyone will talk about you in verse 6. Okay, so he's, he's like, I'll praise your holy name. I'll, I'll praise you because you're king. I'll praise you every day. And then he talks about some of the good works that God does. And then he says, everyone will talk about you in verse 6. And then the next time he says, um, everyone will know about you in verse 12. And then everyone will depend on you in verse 15. And then he says, everyone will respect your holy name forever in verse 21. And so you kind of see this progression that people will talk about you. Like this is just, talk, just a general conversation. They'll just talk. And then they'll come to know about you. And maybe that's like experiential knowing. Or maybe it's just I've heard people talk about you so often that I feel like I kind of know you. And then 
they move on to this other, like there's dependence, so I depend on you. But the idea really is like everything in creation depends on God, right? If, if God's not there, the planet falls out of the universe. That's a freaky thought, right? Have you ever, okay, so just tonight when you get in bed and you're just laying there and it's quiet and you're just about to go to sleep, think just for a second, what happens if God stops holding the earth up? That, okay, trigger panic attack, right? Look, like have the medication handy because that's a freaky thought to like, how are we suspended in the middle, like nobody has explained that to me in any sufficient way. Like evolution has said, okay, there was a, like a, there's a big bang, right? And all of the fragments of whatever banged um, went out and stopped at different distances from the center and then began to spin this way and began to spin this way like that sizzler ride at the little carnivals, my favorite ride, um, and spin around the center bang thing that was really big and then all of these other universes came out of that somehow but I want to know how do we hang there nobody knows we depend on God it's just this general dependence on God and he says look everyone will respect your holy name forever now I don't know about you but I go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago when it, when it says that when Jesus comes back, what will happen? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, there are people who are not believers in Jesus whose knee will bow and tongue will confess, right? You can respect somebody without really knowing them. Like you respect their position. And so these statements about everyone, how everyone kind of views God, are just, they're just really general. They leave out a lot of personal commitment or involvement on the part of the individual. But David's assumption still is that if someone knows God, they will come to depend and respect God at some point in their lives. And, and I think that's what the Israelite people did. They certainly had a, a greater knowledge of God, right? So God called Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and, and, and then the nation he called out of Egypt under Moses. And they wander in the desert for 40 years and they see God do all of these crazy things as God led them out in the wilderness. So when David writes about how his people see God, how the Israelite people see God, it's more about what God has done for them as a nation. It's not just everyone, but you'll see in just a moment how it kind of narrows, like there's a funnel here and we're getting a little closer to the, to the bottom, right? Everyone has this kind of general understanding about God, but the Israelite people, because he's acted on their behalf, they get a little closer um, look at God. And so they see him from the things that he has done, but it's a little different because at this point in the history, all of the things that God did were kind of in their past. So we're quite a ways from 
the Israelites being led out of Egypt and, and God showing himself in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and changing the water from bitter to sweet and causing the sun to stand still and crossing the, the, uh, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba, right, in the water and the Egyptian army being killed. Like, we're a long ways from that. And so the people of Israel, they're talking about what God had done, but many of them had not seen him do those very same things in their own lives. So he talks about the generations of Israelites passing on their God stories and how they as people saw God through the lens of what he had done for them. So um, let's look at how the Israelites talk about God. The, the first one is in verse 4. He says, um, they talk about your wonderful and powerful deeds. Okay, so these are the things that God has done. And they're, they're big things, right? I mean, God doesn't do little things. Like it's big stuff that he did for the Israelites. And so as the Israelites are talking about God, they talk about these big things that he had done. In verse 5, they talk about your marvelous glory and your mighty miracles. Again, the things that God has, has done. In verse 6, your fearsome deeds. Like some of the things God did were like, woo, crazy, Okay. Remember, there was a, a, a whole tribe of people, a whole family, ancestral family of people who tried to overthrow Moses and take control. Do you remember what God did to those people? Moses called the whole, like the whole family, everybody. There were hundreds of them, lots of them, maybe thousands. Then they called them up in front of the whole assembly. And Moses is like, okay, God is going to, pick between you and and me and God just opened the ground and the entire family group of people just fell in and ground closed up that is a fearsome deed like I'm going okay don't mess with Moses right <laughs> that's crazy they go on to talk uh, verse 7 your matchless mercy and power to save. And then in verse 11, your marvelous kingdom and, and, and your power. And then in verse 12, your glorious kingdom. And in verse 13, your kingdom with no end. And so what we see here is the, the Israelite people had seen God do incredible things, but not this Israelite people. They just heard the stories of what God had done. David's generation hadn't seen much of these incredible things. Because they had been settled in the promised land. Right? The, the miracles of God often happened when he called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was getting them out of Egypt. It was doing all of these things that needed to be done. And then the people finally get to the promised land. And what do we need God for anymore? We're here. We, we live in this great place, this land that we dreamed of. We have a place to call home. We have nation that has industry and we have property. And, and they, were, they were like a real nation finally. And so they didn't need God as much as they did before. You can also see that it's possible to know about the things God has done without really knowing God yourself. You can, you can talk about God without really knowing God. You can, you can quote scripture, right? You can quote scripture and you can still miss the Savior. 
I've known people in, in my life and, you know, been a Christian my, my whole life and I've been in church my whole life and dad was a pastor and all that kind of stuff. And so I've, I've seen people in church who know the Bible backwards and forwards and they love to sit and talk about the Bible, but you never see them serving. You never really see them giving anything. Like they just want to talk about their own knowledge of the scripture and they never want to get involved. And yet Jesus came, he said, he came to serve. I'm like, you, you cannot read the Bible and read about Jesus and know God and understand what he's doing without also being motivated to get involved and to serve others in some way. In fact, in fact God tells us pretty plain in, in Scripture how we serve people horizontally, the people around us, expresses directly how we feel about God and how we serve him vertically. So you can know a lot about Scripture and you can still miss the Savior. The Israelites, the Israelites at this stage, they knew a lot about God, but many of them lacked personal knowledge of God. And so let's look a little bit closer at the psalm um, and, and, and see what David says about God. The first thing uh, is he says in verse 3. And so he's talking about like, I'm going to praise you because you're God and king, right? I'm going to praise you every day. And then he talks a little bit about your marvelous power and your grace. And it's almost like as David ta is talking about how everyone sees God, it kind of inspires him a little bit. And he's like, hey, like, I know God. Like, let me share with you what I know about God. And so we get this little different picture about how David sees. So he says, you are wonderful and deserve all praise in verse 3. In verse 8, he says, you're merciful and you're kind and you're patient and you're always loving. In verse 9, he says, you're good and you take care of all your creation. In verse 13, he says, you keep your word. That's a, a big one. In verse 14, he says, you give a helping hand. We're going to come back to that a little later in the message. In verse 19, he says, you provide food. Yeah, please, I need that, right, to, to live. I like that. In verse 16, I like this one. He says, you satisfy desires. In verse uh, uh, 18, he says, you are near. In verse um, 18, in verse 19, he says, you come to save. And I think there's even another one. Let me go back, but I don't think it fit on the, on the screen in verse 20, he says, you take care of everyone who loves you. Now I got to go back and find where it was. There you are. So can, can you see how the focus changes a little bit? How everyone kind of sees God, how the Israelites see God because of the things he's done without really knowing him personally. So they talk about these great grand things that, that God has done for them. But when David thinks about God, it's much more personal. Like David's focus is getting smaller, right? The funnel is getting smaller. There's humanity that's only been somewhat exposed to the idea of God. There's the nation of Israel that's heard stories about the incredible things that God has done. And then there's David who seems to speak from experience when he says you're kind and patient, you're always loving, you take care of all your creation, you keep your word. There's no way for David to know that unless God had kept his word to him. This is how David views God. 
because David has experienced God. David experienced God when he went after the bears and the lions that had come to attack Jesse's sheep, right? Jesse is David's dad, and, and David started out as a shepherd, the youngest in his family before he was anointed king and had to wait um, 10 years and then another seven years, or maybe seven years and another 10 years, I don't remember, until he was king of all of Israel. That was a big deal. He experienced God when he stepped onto the field to fight Goliath with just a sling and a stone. He experienced God when he was in the cave and Saul was chasing him and David thought every day it might be his last day. He experienced God in his coronation. He experienced um, God when, when Bathsheba's first child died because of their sin. He experienced God when, when Nathan the prophet came in and confronted him with his own sin about killing Uriah and taking his wife. He experienced God when he had to flee his palace because his son Absalom had tried to take the throne from him. He experienced God when he, when he had his second son Solomon take the throne and he amassed all of the raw materials for the very first wood and stone temple that was going to be built for God that Solomon would build. David experienced God in many, many ways. And so we see this from, from, from David's perspective of God, we see this. Until God is dear to you, he'll continue to feel distant from you. Until God becomes dear to us, he'll continue to feel distant. And, and we may know about God and we may talk about the great things that God has done, but that personal relationship with God might be lacking if God's not dear. So let's look at how David um, views his growing relationship with God. Let's go back to Psalm 145. We'll start at the beginning. We'll look at at what David says about God. And so um, David responds to God first as, as deity. In verse 1, David says, I will praise you, my God and king. David doesn't just uh, um, um, see God, as, like he sees God as king, right? And so there's this um, relationship here. It, it, it seems like David is is praising God because of um, his position, right? So he recognizes that God is God and that he's king. And, and David is going to be king one day himself. And at this point, when he writes this psalm, Saul is king. And David knows how you behave in the presence of a king. You bow. You show respect and you show honor. You talk well about them because if you don't, you die, right? This is not a, a good thing. And so, and so David's understanding of God in the beginning is he's like, he's like, look, I just recognize that you're the king and I'm the servant. And so I'm going to praise you because of your position. Now, um, maybe you, you noticed the asterisks before in verse 19 and verse 20 that we looked at a moment ago, and, and now again in verse 1. So if you're taking notes somehow, just put a star, asterisk, circle, underline, whatever. Verse 19 and 20, 
and then verse 1, because we're going to talk about those in, in just a, a, another minute. But the first way that David responds to God is as, is as deity, and it's just a hierarchy here, right? David says, I recognize that you're God, I recognize that you're the king, I'm your servant, and so I'm, I'm going to praise you. Secondly, David responds to God with discipline. And so in verse 2, he says this, he says, I will praise you each day. So he's like, okay, I, you are the king, and I understand that you're God. Everyone depends on you. You cause everything. You, like, you keep up the planets. You're this great God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to discipline myself to praise you every day. Like you just, that's just what you deserve, right? So I'm just going to do this every day because you deserve it. And then in verse 5, he, he says this. He says, I will keep thinking about your marvelous glory and your mighty miracles. So, so this is a discipline that David is developing in praising God every day. You're the king, I'm the servant, I'm going to praise you every day. Um, but then he says as he's praising God, it, it's like all of a sudden um, he begins to think about God. So it's like every day, every morning he gets up, he says, okay, I'm going to praise God, this is just what I do. Um, but as I do this, I begin thinking about God's marvelous glory and his mighty miracles. So kind of who he is and what he's done. I'm, I'm remembering those things. When we talked about in the, in the communion talk, he remembers and he meditates and, and, and he ponders those things. And so, and so it's just a natural outflow of this everyday discipline that, that David has is that he begins to think about God. So he finds himself thinking about him during the day. And then that moves on to the next thing in verse 6. He says, um, I will tell all nations how great you are. And so like, I'm thinking about God every day. And, and so because I'm thinking about God, what happens is then I begin to talk about God. I begin to tell other people about God. What God's doing in my life and, and how he's functioning and, and what's happening. And so that's just kind of a natural outflow, right? If you get up every morning and you read God's word and you think about it during the day, how it applies, what it means, all of that kind of stuff. At some point during that day, somebody is probably going to cross your path. Something is going to trigger you and you're going to go, you know what? That reminds me of what I was reading this morning. And so it's a natural thing when we're praising God, when we're thinking about God, that we would then tell other people about God. And so David approaches God as deity first, then he develops this discipline of everyday praising God, again, because of who you are. But finally, David sees God as near and dear to him. In verse 21, at the very end of the, the psalm, David doesn't say, I praise you because you're God and king. And he doesn't say, I praise you every day, like, because you deserve it. He, he just says this. He says, I praise you, Lord. So, so David has kind of come all the way through Psalm 145, right? He, he's very impersonal at first. I praise you because you're the king, and that's what I'm supposed to do. But as I made this discipline, right, to, to come back and to praise you every day, I began thinking about the things that you did and about who you are. And the more I thought about you, God, the more I found that I talked about you to other people. And the more that I talked about you, I found that you were close to me. 
and you're near to me. And so at the end of the psalm, he doesn't praise God for who um, uh, he is as the king, and he doesn't just praise God for what he's done. God, praise you because you gave me this and you did this for me. And, you know, we talked about that last week. God's not a genie in the Bible. David comes to this place where he simply praises God because he's God. I praise you, Lord. Because of who you are, not because of your position, not because of what you've done, but just because of who you are. So David doesn't just see God as the king. He's not just focusing on the things that God has done. He now can praise God simply because he's God, because he's near and has become dear to David. So here's our bottom line from David's journey um, today. Faith will never be perfect until it's personal. And maybe that, this, this struck me um, yesterday, maybe that is what happened when Jesus talks to the disciples, you know, multiple times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God, uh, Jesus is with the disciples, and something is going on. Uh, there, he's in the boat, and the waves are crashing around, and the disciples wake him up, and they're like, don't you care that we are going to die? And, and what does Jesus say over and over to them? Oh, you of little faith. And I wonder if the reason that Jesus says that is because their faith hadn't become personal yet. They might have believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they hadn't put their faith in him as a person. They hadn't gotten to that place yet. Now they get there, right? Because we see what happens in Acts as they change the world because they saw the risen Savior. Their faith became personal, but your faith will never be perfect until it becomes personal personal. Now we got a last little bit. We got to focus on a couple things here. In the 14th verse, I want to look at what I think is the changing moment for David and for us. Um, Verse 14, he says this, when someone stumbles or falls, you give a helping hand. And I love that verse because there's no preface to that, right? This verse falls under the everyone heading and the Israelite heading, and the David heading. When somebody stumbles or falls, anybody stumbles or falls, you give a helping hand. See, God's not distant from us. He he doesn't look at our lives from afar and and go, oh, they, they, they look good. I think they're doing okay. When we stumble or fall, when we fail, and when we sin, he is close enough to offer a helping hand. In the communion talk, I, I said um, from the psalm, right, that we're to lift our hands toward God. And when we do that, we know that God is right there and he's going to take our hands and he's going to help us up. David needed the hand of God more than once. <laughs> Multiple times in his life, he needed that helping hand from God. When he did stumble, when he did fall, when he did fail, even failed with Bathsheba and failed in the mur- murder of Uriah, God was not a violent dictator towards David. And he was not a strict disciplinarian. He was a loving father and a close friend. So he didn't come to David and say, that's it, I'm done, you blew it, uh, get, out of my, get out of my sight. He, he gives a helping hand. See, knowing God as near and dear not only helps us praise him, but it gives him access to our lives so that he can be involved, not from afar, but in the little things as well as the big. 
We need to see God as the king he is, right? We need to approach God as the king. Every time that somebody saw an angel or has a vision of God, what do they do? They get down on their knees and they put their face in the ground. There's a humility there in the presence of God. And we need to recognize that that God is God and that he's the king. We also need to be disciplined in our lives as we think about what he's done for us. And then through that, to be able to tell other people. But ultimately, God wants us to approach him as near and dear. He wants to be that person for us. He wants to be the one we go to in our lives. There are a lot of vices that we can have in our lives, right? And those things are there to replace God. There's a lot of things in in, in my own life, I I find this, that when life gets difficult or stressful, even when there's just a lot of spiritual stuff going on, I find that I try to just numb out. I just want to numb out various ways that we can do that. God is, is going, look, I don't want you to numb out. I want you to dig in in those moments. I want you to realize that I'm there with a helping hand, that I want to help you out of this, that I'm not going to bury you in more condemnation, but I'm going to help you out of the mess you're in. There's one last thing I want us to see before we leave Psalm 145, and it has to do with those verses I had you um, mark before, uh, verse 19, verse 20, and verse Um, one that I mentioned earlier. So let's look at that really quick because I think there's something really cool that takes place in Psalm 145. Verse one says, I will praise you, my God and King, and always honor your name. For there to be a king, there has to be a kingdom, right? That you can't be a king without a kingdom. It has to be both of those. They go together. In Mark chapter one, verse 15, Jesus says that God's kingdom will soon be here, that we should turn back and believe the gospel, the good news. There is a kingdom, and everyone and everything exists in it, okay? So the first thing we see from David is that there's a a king, and that there must be a kingdom. And then Jesus reinforces that in Mark chapter 1 when when he says that there's a kingdom and it's going to come and so you need to be ready. Now let's look at the next one. Verse 19, he says, you satisfy the desires of all your worshipers and you come to save them when they ask for help. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said that he had come to look for and to save people who are lost. Now this is the first coming of, of Jesus, right? When Jesus came, he came to, to be a personal sacrifice for you and I. He came to not only restore the broken relationship between humanity and, and God, but he paved the way for humanity to be with God forever. And so the Bible says that when Jesus comes the first time, he comes as, as Savior, right? He came in humility. He was born as a baby. He allowed himself to be killed. He came to pave the way for our relationship um, with God. He came to satisfy the desires of the worshipers, the desire for holiness and righteousness that couldn't be attained on our own. He came to save them when they ask for help. Now, that help is available to everybody, right? Every person who ever lived, that help is available, but it's only given to those people who ask for it through faith and and, and belief and, and following God. Now let's look at the next one in verse 20. You take care of everyone who loves you. 
but you destroy the wicked. And I want to go um, down to Revelation. Here's what it says, Revelation 21, 6 to 8. This is John's depiction of the second coming of Jesus, right? John is on the island of Patmos. He has this vision of God. He sees these things happening. This is what God says in verse 6. Everything is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I freely give water from the life-giving fountain to everyone who is thirsty. Satisfy the desires of anybody who asks for it. I give that. I'll freely give water from the life-giving fountain to everyone who's thirsty, and all who win the victory will be given these blessings. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Okay, that's Revelation 21, but way back in the beginning, what happened? God created Adam and Eve, and he walked with them in the cool of the day. There was a relationship there every day between God and his creation. Then God called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then he called Israel out of Egypt. And what he said, he said, if you follow me, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. That's a personal relationship. But in verse 8, it says this, but I tell you what will happen to cowards, to everyone who is unfaithful or dirty-minded, murderers or sexually immoral, or those who use witchcraft or worship idols or tell lies, they will be thrown into the lake of fire and burning sulfur. This is the second death. Okay. Here in Psalm 45, which David probably wrote as a very young man, roughly about a thousand years before Jesus is even born. In Psalm 145, we find the gospel, the good news, that there's not just a kingdom, but there's a king. And that everyone who would call on that king would be given life, but that king is going to come back someday. And when he comes back, those who believe are going to be separated from those who don't. Those who call him Lord and King and Master and who have received his hand because they've reached up and, and taken it are going, to be, are going to be welcomed into eternity and those who don't aren't. And so really the big deal is right now as we see the gospel from David in Psalm 145, we go, what do we do? Well, Jesus the King, God's sinless Son and our Rescuer died in our place and rose again as our promise. He did that to restore our relationship with God so that you and I could live our real lives through Holy Spirit power as we wait for his return. Now, our response to the gospel, that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, that he's coming back again, is to believe and repent and follow. And we follow Jesus by looking more like him every day. And that won't happen until Jesus becomes, until God becomes as dear to us as he is near to us. And so our challenge this, this week, um, what we want to do is, is we want to work at not just remembering that Jesus is near to us every day and everything that we're going through, okay? Think about it this way. Maybe this will stick in, you, in your head if nothing else does. It's like God is walking through the yard of your life. And he knows where every 
pothole is and where every piece of gravel is and every little worn out patch where you keep going back to that place and it's a mess and no grass will grow there and he knows those places where there's really good grass growing and he knows those places where there's bent grass and Johnson grass and gross grass growing in your life and he knows that because he's near to you. He's walking in the yard of your life every day. He's not some distant God who doesn't get it and is just kind of passing over you and giving you a passing glance. He's right there with you. And so we need to first remember how near God is to us so that we can begin to work on getting to the place where God is as dear to us as he is near to us. One of the ways we do that is by praising God like David every day, by getting into those disciplines of reading the word and spending time in prayer, sharing what we learn or, or what God has done in our lives with other people. And then as that begins to work and develop in our lives, we get to the point where we can say, look, God, I'm going to praise you just because you're you. If you're ready to follow Jesus uh, today, whether here in person or online. Um, we have a next step for you. If you're here today in person, we want you to go back to the Connection Hub in the back and talk with one of our volunteers um, back there. They'll coach you through or talk you through the steps online to get through that. If you're joining us online today, we'd love to have you go over to reallifecc.us forward slash I'm ready. And, and then pick which one you are. Maybe you want to rededicate your life. Maybe you're ready to be baptized and be obedient to God in that way. Or maybe you're ready to take that first step and give your life to Jesus because you recognize how near he is to you and you want him to be as dear to you as he is near to you. And we want to give you the opportunity um, to do that. And so if you're here today, we're going to sing another song and, um, and you can go back to the Connection Hub while we're singing that song or wait till the service is over. You can jump online and you can take care of that there. We just want to be a help to you, a resource to you. We want to be able to pray with you and um, help you through as you, as you make Jesus near and dear to you. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for being near to us um, even when we feel like we are far away from you. You are a God who's near even, even when you're not very dear to us. And, and when we stumble and fall, you're there just to help us up, regardless of whether we did it to ourselves or not. Thank you, God, for being a gracious and merciful and loving God and for all the things you've done. But really, God, just thank you for who you are you're a loving God and you want to be with us forever. And so, um, God, as we just close out this part of the service today, we're going to go back to the world and to our homes and um, to our families and to a little bit of probably chaos and, and, and struggle. And, and, and maybe, maybe this week, like maybe there's somebody there watching online or here in person. They're like, this week is just going to stink. God, would you be especially close to them? Would you help them to, to feel that nearness that you, that you are to us, to, to, be, to reach up and grab a hold of your hand because you want to help us when we stumble and, and when we fall. And, and God, would we come to that place where you're dear to us, 
where we're praising you for who you are, where we're in your word every day and we're praying every day and we're just loving you and enjoying the presence like David is. And we're able to say that you are merciful and gracious and kind and, and, and loving and you keep your word to me, not just to others. Would you be our personal God and would we remember that each and every day? In Jesus' name. There's no space that his love can't reach. There's no place where we can't find peace. There's no end to amazing grace. Take me in with your arms spread wide. Take me in like an orphan child. week.